Hello and welcome back to Food Toxicology. I'm Greg Muller, the instructor for the course. Well, today what we're going to do is actually tap on uh, several of the different areas of food toxicology that we've talked about thus far in the course. We're especially going to go back and reflect on uh, the uh, ecology of food that we introduced in one of the lectures in terms of trying to understand the relationship between organisms and their food chains. Today what we're going to do is perhaps delve into the microecology of food, uh, talk about bacterial toxigenesis. What we're not going to do today, this is not a food microbiology or a microbiology class, but we're going to focus on the chemical toxins, these uh, primary and secondary chemicals that are made by bacteria and how they impact human health and the human food chain. Uh, this, I think, will be a very interesting uh, lecture uh, in terms of uh, toxicology on a very, very small scale, but with dramatic impacts in terms of uh, human health and disease. Our learning objectives uh, here today, what we're going to try to do, is define uh, bacterial toxigenesis. Uh, we're going to use that to explore the various types and varieties of bacterial toxins some of their background, a little bit about their nomenclature. We'll try to differentiate the two major categories of bacterial toxins, endotoxins and exotoxins, and try to give you at least a broad stroke understanding of the differences and in a certain sense the similarities in terms of uh, why bacteria might use these particular chemicals in terms of their own survival. We'll try as well to explore some of the toxicity properties and modes of actions of exotoxins. We won't go into this in great detail, again, because uh, this is a complete area of study that could be dealt with in multiple courses in terms of the impact of these uh, pathogenic bacteria, their mode of action, and their different toxins that they may produce. We'll try to and then slip into a little bit more important area in terms of uh, food toxicology, and that's uh, endotoxins, or pyrogens as they're called. They're called pyrogens because they induce fever. Um, and we'll try to understand their toxicity, some of their properties, mode of action, again, in a bit of a broad stroke. This is intended to be an introductory, a familiarization lecture, uh, again, to try to learn about that interface between chemistry and biology that we call toxicology. In this case, the chemistry are chemicals that are produced by biological organisms in a very similar way as we've talked about secondary plant chemical compounds and your understanding of various uh, insect and animal venoms. We'll try to understand endotoxins and their influence on human disease and the development of sepsis. We'll try and then finish off with a a little bit of a short review on how uh, workers in the field, how people in the food sciences, the pharmaceutical sciences, especially uh, try to detect endotoxins to look at process control, to study uh, the safety of food products, the safety of drugs uh, and medical devices. Again, because endotoxins are heat stable, uh, and because they're heat stable, the normal uh, HACCP or microbiological controls that we use in food and food processing uh, may not actually reduce the toxicity of the residual uh, toxicants from the biologicals. 
Well, in terms of bacterial toxigenesis, we can define this as the ability to produce toxins. Just very simply, this is one of the mechanisms of bacterial disease. We can divide these into two broad categories of toxins. The cell-associated uh, coatings are lipopolysaccharides, LPSs you'll hear us talk about uh, quite a bit today. Uh, these are referred to as endotoxins. And the other major category are exotoxins, and these are extracellular diffusible toxins. Uh, and again, some of these are associated with many pathogens uh, that are common in terms of a discussion of human health and disease. Now, in terms of uh, broader kind of descriptive uh, uh, identities of bacterial toxins, I have several uh, definitions or descriptions uh, out of various authors in terms of what these chemical compounds are and what they do. The first one here is that they are, uh, these bacterial toxins or these substances are toxic to eukaryotic cells as measured in a variety of ways. It can also be defined as a micro, microbial substance able to induce host damage. Another definition for you is that it is any microbial product or substance that is harmful or lethal to cells, tissue cultures, or organisms. That's an atlas definition. Um, you can also consider bacterial toxins uh, to be common and a serious cause of tissue damage in bacterial infection. Uh, it's determined by uh, the disease manifestation of microbes. is actually determined by the production of these microbial toxins to a degree. These bacterial toxins are important determinants of mi microbiological or bacterial uh, virulence, uh, and we'll see that in terms of uh, exotoxins. Another definition for us, microbial toxins are components or products of microorganisms which, when extracted and introduced into host animals, can reproduce disease symptoms. So it has independent action beyond the production from the biological source. And these disease symptoms are normally associated with the infection without infestation by those uh, microorganisms. And so that gives us a sense that we're dealing with chemicals and the manifestation of a toxicosis, uh, a, a biologically induced toxicosis, and an intoxication, if you will. Now, in terms of coming up with uh, the terminology and nomenclature for bacterial toxins, uh, you've heard me say exotoxin. This is an extracellular protein, typically toxin, whereas endotoxins are associated with the lipid A portion of the uh, cell wall, the outer cell wall of gram-negative uh, uh, bacteria. Uh, another major category in terms of nomenclature are enterotoxins, and these are ones that act on the GI tract. Uh, they're typically associated with uh, food processing, food poisoning symptoms. Uh, these are the ones uh, that concern us most, perhaps, in food toxicology. But in terms of the broader nomenclature of bacterial toxins, we find that they're named for the various host cells that can be attacked, like cytotoxins or neurotoxins. Uh, they can be named in terms of uh, the producer or the disease, uh, like cholera or shigatoxin. You'll see them named for particular uh, biochemical activities or uh, specificity as well as just coming up with letter designations to uh, differentiate them from other bacterial toxins. Now, in terms of comparing endotoxins and exotoxins, 
We need to understand that ex endotoxins are uh, cell-associated uh, substances and that they are structural components of the outer membranes of these gram-negative bacteria. They can be released from growing cells, especially during exponential growth periods. Uh, they can be released from cells which are lysed from uh, effective host uh, uh, defenses, uh, for instance, by lysozymes, uh, which pierce the cell membrane. Uh, they can be released from the activities of certain antibiotics. The important point here is that the chemical, the toxin at this point in time, uh, can exist and have virulence independent of the uh, death of the uh, host uh, of the uh, uh, infecting bacteria. Now, exotoxins are usually secreted by bacteria, uh, but in some cases they are also released by the lysis of the bacterial cell. It's important to note that with a growing colony of bacteria, there is this chance for increasing concentrations of these toxins and therefore a dose response in terms of the health of the host uh, and uh, the uh, response, the potential response from the increase of dose as the bacterial counts increase. Now, if we focus a little bit on exotoxins, we find that these are the most well-characterized family of toxins. Um, they're secreted as soluble proteins, and so they're protein toxins. Uh, they enter eukaryotic cells primarily through receptor-mediated uh, endocytosis. Uh, some of these uh, infections uh, can involve local colonizations. Sometimes uh, there can be a systemic disease which occurs uh, distal to the site of the original infection. And so these uh, disease courses are pretty significant in terms of uh, management of the health of the host. In a broad category, there are two different types of endotoxins. Uh, these are membrane-acting toxins, and the other category is toxins with cytosolic uh, targets. Some of the mode of action of these various types of exotoxins in include uh, damaging the membranes uh, by forming pores, uh, allowing leakage and transport of materials that should not be outside the cell or inside the cell. Uh, they can inhibit protein synthesis. Uh, they can activate other pathways, messenger pathways. They can uh, act as uh, superantigens and, and uh, activate immune responses. Uh, they can also uh, act as uh, protease uh, um, uh, enzymes. Some of these exotoxins, uh, they're typically soluble and uh, they are secreted by living bacteria. We find that although uh, in many kind of historical accounts of exotoxins, they are more likely to be associated with gram-positive, uh, we find now that they are uh, found in both uh, gram-positive and gram-negative uh, bacteria in terms of uh, these soluble protein toxins. A, some of these uh, uh, toxins, they're actually uh, particular to a specific uh, bacterial species. And so the toxin associated with uh, uh, a uh, tetanus uh, clostridium uh, will be a tetanus toxin. Uh, and uh, and a, another diphtheria toxin will be associated with a, 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 the bacteria that produced that particular toxin. We find that uh, the virulence of the exotoxins um, uh, are uh, associated with the particular bacterial strain. Uh, some bacteria of a uh, particular species will produce 
uh, a high level of uh, toxin or virulence uh, associated with the toxin. This particular toxin um, production is the determinant of virulence within a bacteria strain. If we take a look at comparing endotoxins uh, as a toxicant in terms of traditional toxicity comparisons that we have been doing here in food toxicology, uh, you'll see on this chart uh, a fairly uh, wide range of toxins, botulism, tetanus, uh, shigellineurotoxin, diphtheria. Um, the second column gives us the toxic dose. Uh, all of these doses are on the order of 10 to the minus fifth to 10 to the minus eighth milligrams, so very low toxic dose to rodents, mice and uh, rabbits and guinea pigs. If we look at a ratio of what the toxic dose uh, is in terms of the ratio to strychnine or endotoxins, these lipopolysaccharides or snake venoms, we find that the uh, exotoxins are uh, on the order of uh, a million times or more uh, uh, lethal uh, in terms of a comparison. Uh, bacterial protein toxins are found to be the most powerful human poisons known, and they do retain high activity at very high dilutions. Now, protein toxins, in terms of how they act, they actually resemble enzymes. Uh, they are denatured by heat, uh, acid, and proteolytic enzymes. Uh, like enzymes, they have high biological activity. Uh, most of these can act in a somewhat catalytic fashion. Uh, they have high specificity for particular substrates, uh, target cells, target organs, or target uh, aspects of uh, uh, body fluids, uh, typically hemolytic. Um, some of these uh, bacterial toxins uh, have a highly specific mode of action. Uh, the <clears throat> uh, site of damage caused by the toxin indicates the location of the substrate, so sometimes uh, our nomenclature, enotoxins, neurotoxins, will tell us that, in fact, uh, for example, a certain toxin will impact uh, neurons. Uh, some of these, uh, for example, uh, tetanus uh, are uh, toxins that attack only neurons. Some of these toxins, however, have very broad cytotoxic activity and they'll end up with uh, causing a broad uh, necrosis, uh, necrotic action across uh, many sorts of cells and tissues. Uh, Staphylococci, Streptococci, Clostridia are, are some of these types of bacteria. There are other toxins uh, that are broadly lethal uh, with uh, unknown specific mode of actions. An example of this is the anthrax toxin. We find that these protein toxins are strongly antigenic, so there's an immune interaction. Uh, what we find is that in vivo, uh, the uh, antibody or antitoxin in this particular case, it would be called, uh, does neutralize the toxicity of bacterial proteins. Typically, uh, lethality or serious disease is associated with the inability of the immune system to compensate uh, for, these, uh, 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 for the toxic effects. Uh, quite often you find that uh, sometimes the uh, antitoxin is associated uh, with a, uh, a, uh, a antigen uh, that uh, is used in therapy. Uh, protein toxins are inherently unstable, so what we find is that in time they do lose their toxic properties. 
but they do retain their antigenic properties. And this is a useful thing because this allows us to develop toxoids which are detoxified toxins, uh, and these can be detoxified in a variety of different ways, and they allow us to use those uh, uh, toxoids uh, to immunize uh, hosts, whether it be animals or humans, uh, against these uh, bacterial toxins. These toxoids uh, are accelerated by treating the toxins with a variety of reagents, including formalin, iodine, pepsin, and others. Typically, they're incubated at 37 degrees uh, in uh, circumneutral pH for several weeks. Uh, these resulting toxoids can then be used uh, for artificial immunization. It's an important part of animal health and human health. Um, we, for instance, uh, use it uh, in our kids for diphtheria and for tetanus uh, vaccinations. We find now with the advent of biotechnology that these toxoids can be genetically engineered uh, in terms of having the same immunization quality of for, uh, especially for uh, bacterial toxins where toxoid production is limited. If we switch over now to gram-negative bacteria and the production of endotoxins, we find with endotoxins that they are an important part of the toxicity of these organisms. Uh, it's not the, the total, but it is the most important part. Um, and again, we go back to some gram-negative bacteria can produce uh, protein exotoxins. Um, this, uh, these endotoxins uh, have a disease manifestation in uh, uh, conditions such as septicemia, toxic shock syndrome, and sometimes uh, in food poisoning. These endotoxins are lipopolysaccharides, and they are part of the cell membrane envelopes. We'll show you in a few pictures uh, here what exactly that means. The uh, interesting part of uh, these endotoxins is that the killed bacteria can still release the endotoxins as they decay. And so there is virulence or there is capacity to cause disease even though we're dealing with a well-prepared food, uh, a sterile substrate, the residual chemicals, which are heat-stable, have the ability to have toxic action. These endotoxins, or pyrogens as they are called, they do cause a wide variety of serious conditions, and these can include fever, shock, uh, changes in blood pressure, and other circulatory functions. And we'll see some statistics in terms of human health and disease that this is, in fact, a very serious uh, uh, pathway in terms of uh, um, a human disease. Uh, we find that endotoxins are toxic to most mammals. We find that regardless of the bacterial source, all of these have the uh, bacterial endotoxins have the same range of biological effects uh, in the animal host. Most of what we know about endotoxins comes from uh, examining uh, uh, experimental animals uh, and not necessarily the study of natural disease. We find that the injection of living or killed gram-negative cells or some purified lipopolysaccharides into experimental animals in terms of toxicology trials, uh, these cause a wide spectrum of nonspecific pathophysiological reactions. These reactions include fever, and again, the pyrogen name, um, changes in white blood cell counts, uh, disseminated intravascular coagulation, they cause coagulation. 
uh, hypotension, shock, and death. And so this is a progression uh, that is uh, largely referred to as sepsis. Injection of fairly do small doses of endotoxins uh, can result in the death of most mammals. Uh, the sequence of events uh, follows a very regular pattern. There's a latent period that's followed by a physiological uh, distress that includes diarrhea, prostration, and shock, and finally uh, death with a sufficient uh, 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 amount of endotoxin. Uh, how soon the death occurs uh, is dose-related. It's related, uh, as in all toxicology, to the route of administration, for example, interperitoneal versus uh, uh, food, and as well the species of uh, animal. Various animals do vary in their susceptibility to endotoxins. Now, if we uh, compare exotoxins and endotoxins, we find that endotoxins are quite a bit less potent and they are less specific in their action. Uh, and they do not act uh, in an enzymatic fashion like exotoxins do. Uh, the problematic aspect of endotoxins is that they are heat stable, again, so sterilization, uh, boiling, heat treatment, retorting uh, does not uh, necessarily reduce uh, the virulence of these particular bacterial toxins. Uh, there are some powerful oxidizing agents that can uh, minimize or neutralize uh, endotoxins. Um, we also find that endotoxins, although they are antigenic and they do impact the immune system, uh, they cannot be converted or denatured into toxoids. And so immunization against endotoxins is not then possible. Um, some of the characteristics, if we compare uh, endotoxins and exotoxins, uh, from a chemical nature point of view, endotoxins are uh, lipopolysaccharides. Uh, the molecular weight is on the order of 10 kilodaltons, uh, whereas exotoxins are proteins, and so their molecular weight is going to be uh, 50 to 100, uh, uh, 50 to 1,000 uh, kilodaltons. In terms of the relationship to the bacterial cell, the endotoxins are part of the outer membrane, whereas the exotoxins are extracellular and diffusible outside of the bacterium. In terms of the potential for denaturing by boiling uh, endotoxins, perhaps weakly, uh, but exotoxins are denatured by boiling. Uh, as I just said before, uh, the capacity to form a toxoid uh, for potential immunization is not uh, available with endotoxins, uh, but it is uh, a potential for exotoxins. Uh, the potency on a relative basis, you saw from uh, the pr uh, previous comparison chart uh, that uh, endotoxins uh, have a relatively low potency. Uh, you'll need greater than 100 micrograms uh, to elicit uh, a uh, toxic endpoint, whereas uh, exotoxins are highly toxic and typically uh, one microgram and in some cases less than one microgram. The specificity in terms of targets, as I had said, was, uh, is low for endotoxins, but very high in terms of exotoxins. In terms of behaving like enzymes, endotoxins don't, but uh, exotoxins usually do. And in terms of pyrogenicity, the ability to cause fever, um, this is why endotoxins are called pyrogens. This is a, a characteristic, and we find, sometimes find that as well with uh, exotoxin intoxication. 
Now we find that the role of toxins, bacterial toxins in food-borne uh, disease are, are uh, interesting in that uh, if they are consumed as preformed, in other words, uh, a food substrate uh, has uh, perhaps uh, had substantial microbial activity, uh, but in the food processing or preparation, uh, the actual bacteria were killed off. Uh, there still will be a level of toxins uh, in that, and but that level of toxins is a fixed dose at that point in time because the bacterium themselves uh, that are capable of making the toxin have been killed by processing. So there is a self-limiting aspect to that. Uh, these toxins are produced by colonized bacteria, and so they can be have a local or a distal effect. Um, they can uh, be considered to be produced by the infecting bacteria to aid invasion, although the evolutionary and ecological reasons in terms of uh, the role of uh, these toxins and, and the production of these is an active research area. We do find that these toxins uh, do have a potential autoimmune response uh, to these uh, super antigen uh, properties that they have. Uh, we also uh, find that this immune response can lead to a cascading uh, series of uh, physiological uh, effects that will lead to shock and potential sepsis. Uh, next two slides, what I've done is uh, take a listing of uh, uh, some of the organisms that are uh, often recognized uh, for foodborne intoxications. As you go down these lists, Aflacoccus, uh, Clostridium, Botulinum, uh, Vibrio, uh, you'll see that these are the ones, uh, if you've taken food microbiology, are the ones uh, that uh, uh, come across our plates, so to speak, uh, far too often in terms of uh, human health and disease. In terms of agents of foodborne uh, infections that also produce toxins, uh, again, a listing of uh, gram-negative and gram-positive uh, uh, bacteria that produce various types of toxins uh, of foodborne concern. Now, if we go back to the books, so to speak, and take a look at bacterial uh, cell structures, uh, we can see, start seeing that in terms of differentiating endotoxins and exotoxins, we can look at uh, gram-negative and gram-positive bacteria in terms of their morphological characteristics to try to come up with a better understanding of the whole uh, background of toxin production by bacteria. Uh, in this uh, simplified cartoon, this breaks down the major uh, components of a bacterial cell uh, of most important to today's lecture actually is out here in terms of the capsule, the cell wall, and the plasma membrane. Here is where we find significant differentiation in terms of gram-positive and gram-negative bacteria, and that also gives us uh, uh, the potential for production of endotoxins in gram-negatives. If we take a look at uh, electron microscopy of bacterial cell walls, uh, you can see that uh, in a gram-positive uh, bacteria, the uh, peptoglycan and the cytoplasmic membrane uh, are tightly held in terms of the uh, outer wall of the cell, whereas in gram-negative bacteria we have an additional uh, uh, layer, this outer wa uh, wall layer, uh, a little bit of space, and then the cytoplasmic membrane, and then the uh, peptidoglycan uh, uh, layer uh, beneath it. 
If we take a look at that, uh, not in SEM, but in a cartoon, uh, we can see that in the gram-positive cell wall, we do have these two layers, but we have an additional layer and a little bit more space in a gram-negative cell wall. It's this outer membrane that's of most interest in terms of bacterial toxins. The gram-positive uh, cell wall, uh, you'll see that uh, structurally, uh, we've got the plasma membrane and then we have the cell wall uh, itself. In a uh, gram-negative uh, cell wall, we have the plasma membrane. Uh, then we have this cell wall that also has this outer membrane, which has a, uh, a, a lipoprotein phospholipid uh, layering as well. In terms of this lipopolysaccharide uh, outer layer in gram-negative bacteria, it is a major constituent of the outer surface of these membranes. Uh, it gives the colonies a smooth uh, appearance. It covers about 75% of the outer membrane. Uh, in terms of the mass of the cell, it's about 3 to 10% of the total dry cell weight. Uh, in terms of molecule counts, there's about 3 to 4 million lipopolysaccharide molecules per cell. And so this can be considered as to a major constituent, a major uh, constituent of gram-negative bacteria. In terms of the molecular structures of the LPS, uh, we find uh, a good consistency in terms of uh, these uh, particular uh, uh, chemicals. Uh, you can break the uh, lipopolysaccharides down to three major components. Uh, this is on the right in the red and white, a space filling diagram, and here is uh, a uh, molecule uh, breakdown. Uh, the lipid form is lipid A uh, down here, which has uh, a good conservation uh, in terms of uh, different species of bacteria. There's a core polysaccharide uh, zone here that's highlighted uh, by various uh, types of unique uh, 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 saccharides, um, and then on the outer part, the O side chain, uh, which does have a, a fair amount of diversity from species to species. In terms of uh, where we get most of the toxicity, the lipid A uh, part of the uh, lipopolysaccharide is a powerful um, biological response modifier uh, that has the capacity to stimulate uh, the mammalian immune system. Uh, what happens is this is released, this molecule is released, and this is the end that uh, appears to have uh, an immunogenic uh, uh, property. If we take a look at uh, lipopolysaccharide, lipid A's, uh, from uh, various types of uh, bacteria, such as salmonella in here, you can see across the different bacteria highlighted in this uh, particular graphic, uh, that there's reasonable conservation in terms of structural similarities of the lipopolysaccharide, especially looking at lipid A. There is diversity there, but reasonably good conservation uh, of structure. In terms of the mode of action of these lipopolysaccharides, we find that they um, can be bound by plasma proteins uh, into LPS binding proteins uh, or LPBs. Uh, there can also be action of uh, free LPSs in terms of the cytosol. Uh, these LPVs will interact with receptors on monocytes and macrophages uh, and other types of receptors and start a chain of events. 
there are three events uh, that are triggered uh, following this uh, interaction. The first uh, major event is the production of cytokines, such as uh, interleukin and tumor necrosis factor. These can stimulate uh, production of prostaglandins uh, and leukotrienes, uh, inflammatory chemicals, um, and start the process towards uh, septic shock. Uh, the next step in the process is activation of a complement cascade, uh, which can cause uh, uh, an immunological release of histamine release, uh, and this release will lead to uh, vasodilation. Um, and uh, the end product here at this step is inflammation. Uh, the third major mode of action is activation of a coagulation cascade. Um, this is a cascade of uh, biochemical and physiological effects uh, that lead to uh, enhanced uh, thrombosis and coagulation and the potential for uh, internal bleeding as the uh, platelets uh, and clotting factors are uh, depleted in the early stages of the disease. This then gets followed by inflammation and hypotension uh, in terms of uh, the pathway to sepsis. So if we examine the inflammation to sepsis pathway, uh, these lipopolysaccharides, the net effect is inducing inflammation, uh, intravascular coagulation, and hemorrhage and shock. Uh, we find that LPS, these lipopolysaccharides, can also uh, act as uh, uh, immune system B-cell mitogens, uh, stimulating the production of uh, additional uh, immune cells, and we'll show this uh, in terms of the cycle or pathway here in a moment. In terms of the um, inflammation cycle uh, resulting from infection or intoxication, this cartoon gives you kind of a, a quick uh, lesson in immunology. Uh, here we've got the lipopolysaccharides, gram-negative bacteria, gram-positive bacteria, or uh, some of the uh, inflammation chemicals, uh, tumor necrosis factor, uh, interleukin. Um, what we find is that the impact in terms of immune cells, pituitary cells, macrophages, T cells, uh, will uh, release a uh, MIF or macrophage migration inhibitory factor. Uh, this is a pro-inflammatory uh, cytokine, and it does uh, act as a critical mediator of septic shock. And so uh, as the immune system is gearing up uh, and to challenge uh, the initial infection or intoxication, it starts a cycle in terms of release of some of these inflammatory chemicals, TNFs and uh, interleukins, uh, and glucocorticoids uh, as well. In terms of looking at this uh, from a receptor based on some of these epithelial cells. Uh, on the left-hand side of this uh, uh, cartoon, you see an E. coli cell uh, with the lipopolysaccharides. These lipopolysaccharides uh, have the capacity to have direct binding, binding and activation uh, to various toll receptors. Uh, these toll receptors on cells uh, cause release of the uh, antimicrobial peptides like tumor necrosis factor and various inflammatory cytokines like interleukin. Uh, there can also be a uh, uh, binding protein-mediated uh, LPS uh, as well. And again, the cascade of impacts in terms of chemotaxis in the cell, uh, communication, chemical communication within the cell, and the cell responding in terms of uh, 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 developing and releasing uh, some of the uh, uh, pro-inflammatory chemicals leading to septic shock. 
From a cellular basis, we can look at uh, the inflammation cycle as well in terms of our adaptive uh, immune systems. Uh, what this cartoon does, and I'll let you kind of go through it uh, on the lecture notes, on the lecture slides. Um, this isn't an immunology class, uh, but in, in general, uh, what we have is uh, an antigen here uh, that is interacting with uh, macrophages, for example, and then stimulating the various productions and responses of T cells, memory T cells, uh, and B cells uh, associated with uh, uh, cell-mediated immunity and humoral immunity uh, in our adaptive immune system. What we find in terms of an immunological response of, uh, to uh, uh, these endotoxins, uh, the amounts uh, which trigger uh, the response are very, very low. Uh, in humans, that can range, uh, that can be from picograms to milliliters and nanograms to milliliters in rats. If we look at it, uh, step back a little bit more in terms of the manifestation of bacterial toxin disease, uh, typically the outcome uh, is a generalized sepsis. Uh, this is uh, a uh, graphic uh, following the arrows in terms of the presentation of infectious infection at the top part. There's an immediate immune system response. There's a release of mediators uh, from white blood cells and uh, vascular endothelium. The cascade of effect in, in effects include uh, increased inflammation, increased coagulation, decreased uh, fibrinolysis, uh, and then endothelial damage uh, leaks, if you will. Uh, that will uh, move down to the next uh, stage in the cascade. Uh, altered tissue perfusion, uh, microthrombi, capillary leaks, leaky vessels. Uh, you then uh, cascade down into organ system dysfunction because of uh, disrupted blood flow, uh, edema formation, swelling, and finally ending in death, uh, unfortunately, far too often. The facts about severe sepsis uh, in the U.S., uh, there's about a one million cases uh, per year. In Europe, this number is about 500,000 cases per year. Uh, the mortality is variable. Uh, it ranges from about 25% uh, to about 50% or more. In the U.S., uh, sepsis kills about 215,000 people per year. It's got about the 10th rank in terms of human disease. Uh, in terms of cost uh, uh, of health care, this is about $17 billion uh, per year in U.S. health costs. Now, because of this uh, substantial uh, concern in terms of the numbers of people impacted and the uh, cost in terms of uh, human health and uh, 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 national treasure, if you will, in terms of uh, health management, uh, detection of, of uh, endotoxins or pyrogens is an important part of several aspects of medicine and the food industry. Uh, in terms of the pharmaceutical industry for intravenous chemicals, uh, because these uh, endotoxins are heat stable, uh, there has to be a mechanism of uh, removing them uh, or limiting their production during the production and processing of various uh, drugs and medical devices. Uh, they do track bacterial counts to make sure it's minimized because lower bacteria counts are going to lower the potential endotoxin production. 
Um, there are also concerns uh, in terms of environmental monitoring, uh, animal handling, uh, for example, uh, chicken and egg production, slaughterhouses, uh, their uh, wastewater or sewage treatment plants. There's significant amount of potential for airborne endotoxin contamination. Uh, endotoxins are all around us. They're in our home. They're in the dust that we breathe. Uh, we do a pretty good job at low-level exposure. Uh, it's when you have uh, high-level occupational exposure that it becomes a significant concern. There can be uh, occupationally induced asthma, inflammation, irritation of the lung tissue associated with breathing the endotoxins that are normal and proliferative uh, in the dust uh, associated with animal handling operations. Um, we can also find uh, the uh, importance in terms of detection of endotoxins in uh, human medicine, uh, the detection of gram-negative bacterial infection, and the diagnosis uh, of sepsis. We do have uh, in pharma pharmacological products uh, limits, uh, FDA limits in terms of uh, pyrogens that are allowed in these products. Uh, moxicillium, uh, this is a, uh, uh, a uh, antibiotic, uh, 0.25 endotoxin units per milligram. Uh, water for intravenous infusion, 0.25 uh, endotoxin units per milligram. Uh, for example, therapeutic devices for CSF uh, uh, contact, uh, 0.06 endotoxin units per milliliter. One endotoxin unit is equal to 0.2 two nanograms of lipopolysaccharide, and so the limits are extremely low. This is an active area in terms of management of product quality control in the pharmacological industry. Now the question uh, that arises then is how, if it's of such great importance, especially great importance as uh, in very, very low levels, how do we actually detect uh, these chemical compounds uh, in routine analysis? Uh, for several decades, uh, we've done uh, biological tests, and we continue to do them for various types of application. Uh, in recent decades, actually, we've uh, come up with a couple of non-biological endotoxin detection uh, analyses as well. Uh, the biological tests, and we'll go through uh, two of these, the rabbit pyrogen test, uh, where we actually use live uh, rabbits in terms of uh, injecting the uh, potential endotoxin uh, into the animal uh, and uh, monitoring it in terms of development of fever. Uh, we also have the Limulus amoebocyte lysate test, a very interesting one. We'll talk a little bit about its history. It's probably the major test that has been used uh, since the 1970s for detection of endotoxin. Uh, there's also a neutrophil chemiluminescence test, which is uh, essentially a cascade uh, biological uh, in vitro uh, test uh, for detection of endotoxin. And then we also have, uh, in terms of non-biological endotoxin detection, we have chemical markers where we look at various fatty acids or conserved parts of lipopolysaccharides, uh, that, uh, especially the polysaccharide uh, part of it, uh, to determine uh, these particular uh, chemical structures. Uh, we can also look for detection of specific molecules uh, um, in terms of, uh, uh, for example, um, uh, uh, enzyme you know, assays uh, or other sorts of uh, presentations, especially on uh, a, uh, uh, molecules or antigens that are uh, secured to some sort of uh, stationary media and use that to detect molecules uh, that are specific for uh, uh, 
LPS or lipopolysaccharides. In terms of the biological tests, the rabbit pyrogen test uh, has been used uh, for most of the 20th century, uh, and it was the standard test for pyrogenicity. Uh, the test took about four hours, and it was accomplished by injecting the uh, pyrogen uh, into a rabbit's ear. Uh, the analysis was to determine if the uh, animal developed a fever, and that would then confirm the presence of pyrogens. Uh, this is uh, a, a strong test in terms of the development of a biological response. It's also caused concern uh, over the years in terms of animal use in uh, testing, uh, and especially in routine testing for uh, pharmaceutical products. In the 1970s, uh, the next step in terms of development of these uh, detection methods for endotoxins uh, came about with the limulus amoebocyte lysate test, uh, and this was uh, uh, based on a serendipitous discovery uh, by some marine researchers about the uh, coagulation uh, reaction of several marine species of bacteria with the blood of the Atlantic uh, horseshoe crab. Uh, this particular coagulation event was then uh, studied as being a marker, a biomarker, for the presence of gram-negative bacteria, and specifically uh, lipopolysaccharides. It was commercially introduced in the 1970s. In 1977, uh, the LAL test, as it's referred to, uh, was uh, 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 mandated by FDA for um, endpoint product tests for human biological products and medical devices. Uh, how they do this, they uh, actually uh, obtain uh, blood from the horseshoe crab, so uh, there's a bleeding event of a few milliliters, I believe it's about 30 milliliters from the crab, um, and uh, this particular blood is then processed, uh, the blood cells, uh, the amoebocytes are separated, and they're lysed to obtain the cellular proteins that are impacted in terms of uh, the presence of endotoxins. There's very uh, specific ways to use uh, LAL tests and to use these particular proteins to get the uh, uh, amount of endotoxin. In a simple gel clot LAL test, uh, we find that it just yields a, uh, provides a simple positive negative. We see a clot, um, it's positive for pyrogens. There's a chromogenic endpoint uh, that offers uh, an LAL uh, quantitative uh, test uh, or uh, a um, lipopolysaccharide quantitative result, uh, and uh, it's a different uh, uh, um, uh, analysis using the same basic uh, uh, horseshoe crab protein. Another approach is the kinetic turbo turbidometric uh, um, LAL test. This also gives uh, quantitative results, uh, uh, but there are uh, some problems in terms of sample compatibility and its application uh, with, uh, for instance, uh, blood samples. Uh, there's also a kinetic chromogenic LAL, uh, which uh, does allow for automation and greater sensitivity uh, down to about one picogram of lipopolysaccharide. There are some limits to the biological tests uh, in terms of uh, examining uh, or detecting uh, endotoxins. This particular approach cannot be used for diagnostic testing of blood or other body fluids. Uh, 
It can't be used uh, when analyzing concentrated uh, salt solutions, uh, like might uh, sometimes be used uh, as dilutants for in medicine. Uh, it can't be used in the testing of uh, chemicals, which uh, typically have concentrated impacts on the protein itself. Uh, and it can't uh, be used in solutions of various proteins. And so in these cases, these non-biological endotoxin detection methods, the chemical methods uh, of uh, a specific immobilized uh, uh, um, uh, enzyme tests or uh, antigen tests or direct chemical analysis, these are the types of uh, detection methods that are used. I can finish up here today giving you an example in terms of an application uh, of endotoxin analysis. This is actually an LAL test um, uh, in ground beef. Uh, this is from Applied Environmental Microbiology in 1979. Uh, this is the result of testing of about uh, 90 uh, samples. Uh, these samples, as you can see, uh, had ranges in terms of uh, the anaerobic plate counts, uh, log anaerobic plate counts from less than five uh, up to greater than seven, so the factor of uh, a hundredfold uh, difference or so uh, in the amount of uh, um, uh, bacteria present. Um, and uh, in terms of the relationship to the mean endotoxin detected by LAL test, uh, the quantitative assessment in terms of uh, uh, mean endotoxin appeared to be somewhat uh, uh, exponential in terms of uh, the growth of the uh, nanograms per gram, ranging from about 50 to about 7,500 nanograms per gram. So that gives you uh, at least uh, perhaps a brief introduction uh, to bacterial uh, toxigenesis. Uh, again, probably not particularly satisfying to those of you that uh, have a substantial background in microbiology. Uh, but what the intent of the lecture was to do is to examine these toxins from a toxicology perspective uh, as chemicals having an impact on biology. We've kind of tried to take a look at the relationship of endotoxins and uh, virulence in terms of protein toxins, but also the generalized uh, uh, cascading immunological uh, inflammatory effects of endotoxins and their potential risk in terms of uh, food production. Uh, for example, um, in the human food chain, we typically are, are reasonably fastidious uh, about controlling uh, microbial uh, growth uh, in terms of refrigeration and preservation. Uh, a decade or so ago, there was some great concern about uh, pet products, uh, dog food, uh, if you will, and uh, the lack of management of those similar sorts of concerns. And then the substantial amount of uh, pyrogens that were detected uh, in some pet foods. This gives us uh, uh, a, a good stopping point in terms of uh, uh, bacterial toxigenesis. What we'll try to do in some further lectures is look at uh, some other chemicals in terms of contamination of the human food chain and its potential for food toxicology. With that, thank you so much. We'll see you later.